The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, last year, I had the great joy of helping coach 12 four- and five-year-olds in flag football. Now, now to call it flag football is a bit generous. It it was more like a chaotic gaggle. That's probably the better description of it. Uh, But during practice, we would teach them how to snap the ball, how to hand the ball off, and how to run with the ball to either the first down or hopefully the, the end zone. And, uh, and we also teach them how to pull flags, right? But, but one of the most important things we taught them was, when you get the ball, which way do you run? Run straight. Don't run backwards, right? Don't run from the kid that's trying to get you. Run around them and try to, yeah, try to run past them and get around them. I, I felt like I repeated that a hundred times. But, oh my goodness. But no matter what, how, what we, you know, how many times we reminded them, Sometimes when they would get the ball, either because they got scared or maybe because they got excited too, sometimes they started running the opposite direction, right? And they would score a touchdown for the other team. And so this would happen in our games, right? And so as a coach, when the kid's running in the opposite direction, I'm yelling to the kid, turn around, you're going the wrong way, buddy. Go go forward, don't go backwards. What are you doing? The end zone's that way, right? Well, If you want a sanctifying experience, I want to encourage you to teach and to coach a bunch of four and five year olds how to play flag football. It is indeed a an exercise of patience. Uh, So, buddy, get off the ground. Buddy, stop picking the the flowers. Come on, you know, engage. You know, it's a it's it's a it's a fun and enjoyable time. Why do I share that story with you as our introduction? Well, in our text this morning, which is Ephesians chapter five, verses three through seven. I I picture the Apostle Paul as our coach. And in this morning, he is on the sidelines saying to us, run ahead and don't go backwards. Don't run the wrong way. Don't you know you are headed for heaven? Don't you know that you have been cleansed? You have been made new. Don't you know the Holy Spirit of God? He lives within you. So don't run backwards to your old way of living, to to the sins that once enslaved you, to your own ruin and eternal destruction. Instead, run forward, run to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Well, this morning we will see in our passage that as followers of Jesus, we're called to three things. First, reject all impurity. Secondly, we're called to live according to our identity. And then finally, we are called to be sobered to God's warnings. Now, as, as a quick disclaimer, I think I touched base with all the, the parents in the room. But if anybody is on the live stream, our, our text this morning, it will address a sensitive topic. And, and so I'll, I will preach it in a way that avoids any graphic terms. But at the same time, I just want you to exercise your discernment as a parent and make the determination on what you feel is appropriate for your kids. And mainly for anybody if they're watching on the live stream. So with that being said, let's read our passage this morning. And again, church, I'll remind you until I don't have to. But I'm going to at the end of it, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. And your response will be thanks be to God. Let's read God's word this morning. 
This is what the word of the Lord says. But sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not be even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is the benefit of expository preaching where we go through a book. We're forced and we're reckoned to touch on difficult and weighty and hard topics. So, Father, I pray that as I preach and more importantly, as your spirit speaks to us through your word, that you would minister to our hearts, that we wouldn't walk out of this room with a greater sense of guilt or shame but that we would walk out of this room with a greater resolve to pursue holiness and to live according to our identity. So pray now that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first, we are called this morning, church, to reject all impurity. And so remember, it is important, right, to always read your Bible within its context. And so preceding this passage, what what we talked a few weeks ago about what the Apostle Paul said to to put off the old self, right? And then to to put on the new self. It's the imagery of of the taking off of clothes and the putting on of new clothes. And so Paul is saying, live according to your newfound identity in Christ. And then if that weren't enough of a command... Last week, do you remember what we talked about? What, what, did, what did the Apostle Paul command us to do? To be imitators of God as beloved children. And, and so in, in our passage this morning, he tells us that one of the clearest ways we are to do that, to, to cast off the old self, to put on the new self, is in regard to our sexual purity in our desires, in our actions, and also in our speech. Notice with me again what what Paul says in verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, and this is the key, it must not, must not, not not should not, not ought not, not not, if you can resist, don't let it be named among you. No, he says it must not. Be named among you, and 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 in, in the original, not that I mean, it's it's clear in the English, but but there are two emphatics put together to to make that word must not. Paul is saying as emphatically as he can, this must not be named among you. And so that that word for immorality there, it's the word porneia from which we get the English word pornography. And 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 if the statistics bear out. It is likely, right, that many in this room either have been or are currently participating in this sin. And statistically, right, we might think initially that it's slanted toward men, but statistically it affects women nearly as much as it does men. And so no one is safe or impervious to this form 
of immorality. And so the goal of my sermon is not to focus on the dangers of this sin, but at the same time, I want to be lovingly clear with you that this sin, it will, church, it will have a deadening effect upon your soul. It will detach you from reality because it enables the sinful practice practice of escapism, right? Just to escape. What, what do I, I'm going to look for this advice to try to escape from my current reality. It, it will distort your view of God's good gift of sex that is to be confined within marriage because it makes this act superficial. It, it will rob you of your capacity to love because this activity, it is an adulterous, it is an adulterous activity. It, it will kill your joy. Because this act, it desensitizes your soul. It, it will dr- drastically affect and maybe even destroy your relationships. Because this, this, it's, a, it's a perverse and warped sin that it, it feeds a sense of self-centeredness. And most importantly, God's word says this morning, if not repented of, it will lead to your eternal destruction. Because Paul doesn't mince words here, and neither should we. God's wrath, it rests on the sexually immoral and impure and covetous. So don't be, I just, I I, I say this lovingly and as pastorally as I can this morning. Don't be deceived. The stakes are high, incredibly high. Indeed, your soul, it is on the line. Church, there is no such thing as a casual look or an innocent glance or an inconsequential viewing. This is an evil sin, and it destroys those who are in the industry. It destroys, it it, it fuels the horrors and the evils of human trafficking all around the world. We want to fight the great evil and sin of human trafficking. One of the greatest ways is living a life of purity before the Lord. And listen, this sin, like I said, if unrepented of, it will kill your soul. So I want to encourage you this morning, flee, 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 repent. And most importantly, this is key. Most importantly, church, if you find yourself in this sin, run to Jesus. I know that when the topic of immorality, when it gets when it gets brought up, either in sermons or maybe in conversations, sometimes people try to guilt and shame other people out of this sin. Right. To be clear, immorality, it is shameful. But listen, guilt will never, and this, this is true for this sin, and it's true for any other sin. Whether, if any other vice or addiction you might find yourself in, this principle remains true. Guilt will never deliver you out of your sin. It will only cause you to go deeper into it. And, and so if you find yourself caught up or enslaved by this sin this morning, hear me, there is only one way of deliverance, and that is along the pathway of repentance and grace. But, but just a quick word on what repentance is not. I know sometimes we, we throw that word around a lot. We, sometimes in the church we throw words around a lot, but we don't give clear definitions to what they are. So what repentance is not, right? It's not only a remorse or, a sor- or sorrow over your sin. It, it does include that, but biblical repentance, it takes it a step further in that true repentance, it is also a renouncing of sin. So it's not just a remorse for sin, it's a renouncing of sin. 
in your life. And maybe one of the most vivid and, and clear and famous examples of this is Jesus's passage in his Sermon on the Mount. When, when speaking on the topic of lust, he said this, you, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so if, if that's the case, if this sin is that serious and it is, Jesus says, so then if your right eye causes you to sin, what? Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Right? This is a picture of what true repentance looks like. It's a no holds bar, whatever it takes, renouncing of sin in your life. But also along the pathway of deliverance. Not, not only does it involve repentance, but listen, church, there is grace to be found as well. In, in Ephesians chapter one, verse five, I think this was like seven and a half months ago. Uh, I, I preached on uh, this, this passage maybe eight months ago. Uh, but, but Paul says this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so maybe I, I wanna, I'm going to apply that verse for you this morning. In other words, God, he knew about your darkest of sins, your most shameful acts, what you've done in secret. He, he knew about it all before the foundation of the world in church. Get this. Still, he set his love upon you. And still he sent his one and only beloved son to die in your place for you. Listen, if you ever doubt the love of God for you, just remember this. Jesus has pursued you to the point of death, death on a cross. And now with his nail pierced hands, he extends his grace to you. If you would come and run to him through repentance. He will receive you. He will not cast you off. No, he will welcome you. He will embrace you. He will cover you with his grace and he will clothe you in his perfect righteousness. So with everything that is within me this morning, church, I urge you today, run to Jesus. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't remain in your shame and your guilt. Repent, renounce that sin, see the sin for what it is, as evil it is, as it is, and then run to Jesus who offers to cleanse you and to forgive you of all unrighteousness. And as followers of Jesus, we are called not to partake in immoral behavior, but also Paul says in verse 4, we're not to take part in immoral banter, right, in immoral speech. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, because these things aren't, they're out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And so I, I remember soon after becoming a Christian, I was introduced to the show The Office. And, uh, and I don't know if anybody in here has watched that or not. But, but as I began to watch it, I noticed that there were a lot of sexual innuendos and joking within the script. And at first, right, I brushed it aside because the other parts of the show, they were funny, they were entertaining. And the thought was, right, you know, I'll tolerate it. I'll accept, accept it. Because I enjoy the other parts of the show. But over time, and I, I don't say this to, you know, uh, but just, uh, but over time, as I began to grow in the Lord, I realized 
that my consumption of and my association with this show, that it wasn't becoming, it wasn't fitting, it wasn't proper of who I am now as a follower of Jesus. And so I felt convinced and convicted by the Lord to cut that out of my life. Why do I I bring that up? Well, this morning we are to talk about the certain aspects of immoral behavior. But I think also this text addresses our consumption of immoral entertainment as well. And so while all Christians should and I hope do regard immorality and impurity as sinful, many of us, we still tolerate it. We're still accepting of it in what we view on TV. And, and I think many, and many people think it this way. Well, it's just a part of today's entertainment, so it's unavoidable. But we say that as if we are obligated to consume our culture's entertainment. And so while I'm not here, right, I'm not here to give a legalistic sermon by any means whatsoever. And I'm not here to issue an edict this morning from on a high regarding what you should and what you should not watch. That's not my heart. However, I will say if there is a show or a movie that has graphically immoral scenes, then that is, hear me, that is not a wisdom issue. That is not a conscience issue. That is a sin issue. And we should reject those kinds of entertainment. But, but what I do want to encourage you this morning is this, it, it, that the next time you turn on the TV or you take out your phone or you fire up your computer, I want you to ask this question and try to discern the answer. Is what I'm about to watch, is it pleasing to the Lord? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Again, not advocating for a self-righteous or legalistic approach to life or our entertainment But what I'm saying is that sometimes we place the wisdom and the conscience cloak over and onto certain items that are clearly sinful in nature nature that we should reject. While the world calls us right and we are bombarded with this, while the world calls us to live in lust. Remember last week's sermon. What does God call us to do? He calls us to walk in love. And so commenting on this passage, John Stott, he he said this. He said, the reason why Christians should dislike and avoid vulgarity, it's not because we have a warped view of sex or are either ashamed or afraid of it, but because we have a high and holy view of it as being in its right place, God's good gift, which we do not want to see cheapened. All of God's good gifts, including this one, they are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for crude joking. To joke about them is to bound them to is to bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. And so the reason why we strive for sexual purity in our walk, in our in our life, and in this church is not to avoid or because we're embarrassed by anything. It's to uphold the good gift that God has given to us within the confines of marriage. And we'll talk about that here in a few weeks. What 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 marriage is. To look like biblically. Now, okay, uh, it, it, to, to pivot a little bit, uh, maybe to let you exhale. Uh, if you have been paying attention, you might be thinking, why, why does Paul list covetousness within the same breath as immorality and impurity? That seems a little, at surface level, that seems a bit odd. They seems maybe unrelated. Well, he does so because at its core, all immorality and all impurity, it is covetousness. It is a craving for after what we don't have 
and a discontentment with what we do have. And so one of the keys, one of the main ways we can fight for purity in this life, it's by seeking contentment in our lives. Jeremiah Burroughs, he, he was a Puritan. And, and uh, if, you, if you enjoy some, uh, some Shakespearean language, uh, I commend this book to you. If not, I think there's a, oh, I'll, I'll remember it. There's a modernized version of this book as well. I think it's called Contentment. Um, but but th- this book, it's called The Rear Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in that book, one of his descriptions of contentment, he describes it as a quiet frame of the spirit of a person. In other words, contentment, it's this heart that is at peace, a heart that has, been, that has received by faith the present providence of God in their life. A, a covetous heart craves after the things of this world, but a content heart is a heart that has been molded by and that is trusting in the promises of God. A content heart is one that, that is tethered to the promise that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so as such, I will trust God's providence in my life during this season. The way we fight covetousness is by pursuing contentment. So this morning, God's word, it calls us first to reject all impurity, to live contently with thankfulness to God for his good gifts that he does give us. But secondly, this morning, I want to draw your attention to a short little phrase in verse three, a short but powerful phrase. And that is we are called to live according to your identity. Notice with me, verse three, if you look at your Bibles this morning, what Paul says that, that immorality and all impurity or covetousness, it must not be named among you. But check out that phrase, what comes next. What does Paul say? As is proper among saints. And, and so if you are a Christian in this room, this is your newfound identity. You are a saint of God. And you remember Ephesians chapter one, who did Paul write this letter to? He said to the saints who are faithful in Ephesus and are, and are in Christ Jesus. And so you might not feel yourself to be a saint this morning, but listen, sainthood, it's not reserved for a select few who perform a miracle. It is true for every single Christian here in this room. The word saint, it's the same word used for holy. And so that word saint, it literally can be translated as the holy ones. And so I want to ask you this morning, church, do you know who you are? Saint of God. Do you know who you are, child of the King? Do you know who you are, fellow heir with Christ? And maybe even more point, pointedly and poignantly, do you know whose you are and what it took for God to make you his own? Paul says in, a, in another place, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You are bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And so if this is who you are, a holy one of God, and it is, then your manner of life, your conduct, your actions, your speech, they should be in line with, in sync, in step with your newfound identity in Jesus. As we have said before in previous sermons, our gospel identity should lead to true gospel living. Another way to put it, Paul would say in Ephesians 4, chapter 1, which really in that sermon we talked about, everything that follows 
chapter 4, verse 1, it is an exposition of this verse where he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Or or in Philippians 1, 27, Paul puts it this way, let your manner of life, let it be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in other words, a life of immorality, of impurity, of covetousness, of filthy and foolish talk, of crude joking, a manner of life like this, it's not fitting. It's not becoming. It's not proper for a saint of God, for a holy one, which is who you are in Christ Jesus. And so the greatest way we can fight for purity in our lives is by first remembering and then living according to who we are in Jesus, who Jesus has made us to be through his life, his death, his resurrection. To believe and then to put on the reality that through the power of the gospel, you have been made new. You have been made holy and you are now a saint of God. And so Paul is saying then, now live as such in this world. The Apostle Peter, he would put it this way in, in 1 Peter 1, 15, Be holy, the Lord says, be holy as I am holy. Now, now to be sure, we, will not, we, we should pursue this, we should strive for holiness. We will never attain perfect holiness in this lifetime until we close our eyes and, and awake in the presence of Jesus. But John Newton, the great pastor, you probably know him. He's most familiar for the the hymn Amazing Grace. He he was a pastor and hymn writer. But before that, before knowing Christ, he was a slave merchant. And so he once said this. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so, church, may we live a life like that, a life that is befitting of our royal and our saintly status as child, as children of the king of heaven and earth. We are called to reject all impurity. We are called to live according to our identity. And then finally, we are called to be sobered to God's warnings. Read with me verses five through seven. The Apostle Paul, he says this, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. So why is this the case? Why why is it that these people, they are under God's wrath? And the Bible says that they are headed for an eternity in hell. And church, this, this is a weighty passage, isn't it, this morning? What's true, because a person who is living unrepentantly and repeatedly in these sins, they do not confess Christ as their king, and therefore they don't have the kingdom of God as their inheritance. Does that make sense? They're, they're not confessing Christ as their king. They're, they are maintaining autonomy over their lives. And therefore, as such, their inheritance is not the kingdom of heaven, but rather the fruit of their sinful actions. And that is God's judgment. You see, because God is holy, he hates sin. The Bible says he must punish 
Sin, for, for him not to punish sin would mean that he would have to sacrifice his justice. And so then in order to uphold his goodness, his justice and his holiness, for him to be a good judge, he must punish wrongdoing. He must punish sin. And so that's why the Bible says his wrath rests upon the sons of disobedience. But listen, church, the story doesn't end there, does it? Yet in love, God has made a way for you to escape his wrath. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, Paul would put it this way there. He said that through the cross, God was able to be both the just, uphold his justice, and to be the justifier of the guilty. Because you see on the cross, in the greatest act ever displayed, the greatest act of love ever displayed. Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserved. He died as our substitute in our place so that, listen, church, we might be forgiven. That we might receive mercy from God and not judgment from God. Jesus endured God's judgment that we might receive his mercy. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, and I say this lovingly, but would you rather face God's wrath on your own? Or would you rather trust in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross where he absorbed all of God's wrath for you? And so I invite you this morning, if you don't yet know Jesus, to turn from your sin and to trust in him today. For he endured and he absorbed all the wrath of God, deserving me, deserving you, for everyone who trusts in him. The Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross, it was sufficient in God's sight. We talked about that last week, didn't we? But at the same time, church... Listen, God's forgiveness for our sin, it doesn't give us a license or a permission to just to continue in sin, right? I heard someone would say, uh, I, I don't know, I forget who it's attributed to, but someone said, I love to sin. God loves to forgive. Isn't this one big happy world, right? And well, it, it, it's funny initially, but in reality, it's evil, right? And, it, and that's not the heart of a Christian because Paul is telling us here in plain Greek for us this morning, Don't be deceived. Whoever makes a practice of habitual sinning where true repentance isn't evident in a person's life, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. These are hard words, yes, but they are true words. And so the warnings of Scripture, they are intended to shock us into reality, out of our delusion of sin and back into reality. And so I want to be clear this morning that we are not saved by our sanctification. There are some who hold that, that that we are saved by our sanctification, by our our growth in holiness. We are not saved by our sanctification. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, from Scripture, for God's glory alone. So we are not saved by our sanctification, but at the same time, we are not saved apart from our sanctification. Does that make sense? The Bible says, for those whom he just predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, means declared righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what does that assume? That he declares us righteous, he will make us truly righteous. And so along that way, he will progressively make us what we will be one day in heaven. 
We are saved not by our sanctification, but we are also not saved apart from our sanctification. And so maybe I hope my prayer is that if there is anyone in this room who has become comfortable living in sin, to heed these warnings from the Apostle Paul this morning and let them lead you not to greater guilt, but to lead you to repentance. And more importantly, to lead you to Jesus this morning for you to return to him through repentance and faith because this truth remains. Jesus, he is more willing to forgive than you are willing to sin. Where, great, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And so if you find yourself in sin, come to him today. So as a point of application, I'm going to bullet point it. I wanted to, to talk uh, on each one, but I'm just going to bullet point it for you this morning. And then maybe maybe in my newsletter, uh, I failed to give the six steps uh, of how to not, to not to go to bed uh, in anger. Uh, I failed to put that in the newsletter, but maybe I'll expound on it more at some point. But I want to give you seven points, seven ways to fight for purity. And the first one is the key. It's foundational. It's the most important. First, remember that you have been pardoned. Remember who you are in Jesus. There's a hymn that says he breaks the power of canceled sin. All of your sin was nailed to the cross when Jesus died. Reckon yourself then dead to sin and alive in Christ. Remember who you are in Jesus. Remember that you have been pardoned. And then you'll notice they all start with P or the main point is P. Secondly, remember, or secondly, seek a greater pleasure. What do I mean by that? Psalm 1611 says this, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Sin always promises, but it can never deliver. But the joy and the pleasure that we receive from the Lord in fellowship with Him, in communion with Him, in living according to His good design, it is a pleasure that is greater than anything you will experience in this lifetime. It is a pleasure that produces peace and harmony in our lives. Thirdly, I said I won't talk on each one, so I got to go fast. Thirdly, remember your purpose. Many, many times we seek after things in life when, when, we have, when we feel directionless, when we don't have a purpose for which we are living. And so remember, brothers and sisters, Every day when you wake up, remember that your purpose in life, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Your purpose in life is to bring glory to God for your, during your day. Fourthly, develop a plan, right? Develop a plan. It, if you find yourself in, in this situation, be sober-minded and identify, okay, what, where are my propensities? Where are my temptations? What, 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 would, what, what are the areas of my life that entrap me the most? And then again, what do we say? Flee, run, cut your arm off, right? Jesus said, cut, cut, tear your eye out, Jesus said. Do whatever it takes, develop a plan to forsake and to remove yourself from those situations where you might find yourself most tempted to sin. Fifthly, surround yourself with people. We're, we're not meant to do the Christian life alone. We need one another. We need the loving accountability and the, and the loving encouragement of our brothers and sisters to fight the fight of faith. Sixthly, pursue Jesus. This goes without saying, but the greatest way we fight sin is seeing the beauty of Jesus. When we live and we live with an intent to, see, to seek the face of the Lord, when we read God's word and we see the beauty of Christ 
it, it does a, a, a work of displacing and removing a sin in our hearts. And then seventhly, prepare for war. Uh, I, I, I say that I know that's big language there. But, but we're going to talk about maybe in a month or so in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about us to put on the armor of faith. Because what we are engaging in church, it is a very real war. And so we are to prepare ourselves for battle, to clothe ourselves with the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the shoes of readiness to make uh, for, for, for peace, to, to make known the gospel. And probably another one that I forgot to include there. Uh, but we are to prepare ourselves for daily battle. It's not going to be easy. But listen, church, our fight for purity, our fight for holiness, it is pleasing to the Lord. And it will bring great joy in our lives. In conclusion, sin, it always promises, but it can never deliver. And so this morning, if you're flirting with sin in your life, or if you're giving yourself over to sin, I want to urge you this morning that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And don't let your heart be deceived by sin. Instead, look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and commit to, by God's grace and by the power of his spirit, to live a life that is in accordance with your identity in him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.